0: So there's this tradition that uh, Christians have done for centuries. Some believe it goes all the way back to the earliest Christians. Uh, Because they were so astonished with the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, they began to greet one another in this way. They would say, he is risen. Yes. And there are a few professional Christians in here. Especially over here. <laughs> now, I know some of y'all are back. You're, you're knocking the COVID dust off. Welcome back. Um, the music is better. The sermons are longer. Um, we're, we're, glad, we're glad you're here, though. So, all together, we're going to try this again. All right, because this is what Christians have been doing for generations now. Are you ready? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And indeed he is. Now, a few years ago, though, we gathered our collective minds as a church and uh, we decided that while that language is beautiful, that ain't Kentucky talk, y'all. And so we took some artistic liberties in order to contextualize this ancient phrase into our modern Kentucky context. So I would ask you to participate again in the Kentucky version of this. Are you ready? Ready? he gone he gone gone. gone. i said he gone gone. and indeed he gone (laughs) it just feels so much more natural doesn't it some of y'all too good at that and that's what i love about this church by the way happy easter everybody i am so glad you're here uh, We're in week seven today of a sermon series that we've actually been running through uh, through the whole Lenten season that ends today uh, in which we've been studying most of our favorite topic, uh, our sin <laughs> and God's grace and how God resolves our sin and in its insidious nature through Jesus Christ. For the nerds in the room, this has been our theological map right here and uh, we're now in the final week and uh, each week we're just looking at a different sphere of human life, how sin impacts that and then the way Jesus resolves it. So this week we'll be looking at the, uh, the realm of our spirituality or what we might call the spiritual warfare that's happening in our hearts and our minds and souls every day and how Jesus gives us victory over that through the resurrection. So if you do me a favor, uh, would you stand with me again? If you're able, please stand. If you're not able, that's okay. You can remain seated. Just put your heart, your mind in a place of submission under the authority of God's word here. We're going to read John's version of the resurrection story found in John chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 1. Uh, John writes, Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Uh, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived. And went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. And thanks be to God for all of his word, every last word of his word. Uh, In 2015, Nicholas Kristof, human rights columnist for the New York Times, uh, wrote an article in which he asked his audience to stop mocking evangelical Christians. And apparently it created a bit of a stir. Now, in the article, he told the story of a man named uh, Dr. Stephen Foster, For those of you who have never heard of Dr. Foster I hadn't until I read the article Uh, He is a third uh, third generation missionary kid uh, Who has been serving now As a a medical doctor Missionary doctor In Angola for 40 years Uh, The reason why Angola for 40 years Is because Angola had the highest child mortality rate On the face of the planet earth So he felt called there Now, if that wasn't hard enough, for the majority of the time they served there, Angola was under a brutal Marxist regime uh, that persecuted Christianity. Yet Dr. Foster said, we were granted visas by the very people who would tell us publicly, your churches are going to disappear in 20 years. But privately, you are the only ones we know willing to serve in the midst of the fire. Uh, Foster, in his time there, has survived tangles with six-foot cobras. He's made do off scant medical supplies. Like, There's this one story of how he pulls the tubing out of the windshield wiper fluid thing on his vehicle and turned it into a catheter to save somebody's life. Uh, there's another story of how 25 armed soldiers came onto the medical facilities complex and tried to, uh, tried to kidnap 25 of his male nurses. And he demanded them off the property. So what did the soldiers do? They fired AK-47 shots at his feet. What would you do in that moment? Dr. Foster was undeterred. He ordered them again off the property and leave my people. And they complied and they left. Oh, by the way, Dr. Foster's also raised his family there, his children. His children have went through bouts of polio, malaria, and near starvation more than once. Foster's not the only one serving over there. There have been Christians uh, from America that have gone to serve with him, many Angolan Christians that have come to serve with him in the hospital. And uh, Dr. Foster is indicative of a trend that we see often in the United States. And it's not me trying to like brag or anything or pat ourselves on the back. This is just a statistical reality, okay? American Christians tend to give more of both their money and their time than non-religious people. And they are far, far, far more likely to move overseas to some part of the developing world in order to serve people who need it the most. So Christoph concludes his article by saying, there's not a lot in common between me and Christians. But He writes this touching line. He says, the next time though, you hear someone at a cocktail party mock evangelical Christians, think of Dr. Foster and those like him. They deserve better. Now, how does a man like Dr. Foster come to give his life to this? Like he got one life, y'all. Just like you, just the like, only one, only one. How does a man bring himself to give up the creature comforts of the United States—cushy seats and climate control rooms—and you know, DoorDash, the salary of a medical doctor, and move overseas to the other side of the world to serve sick strangers and take his family with him? How? What compels a person to do that? Well, I'll tell you what it is for Dr. Foster. It's because Dr. Foster believes in the gospel that we celebrate this Easter and the ideas that we believe at the core of who we are, in our minds, in our souls, in our hearts, whatever you want to call it, right? The ideas we allow into the control room of our lives, they matter. They determine our lives. And Dr. Foster believes in the cross, love, love, over death he believes that when you put Jesus' cross-shaped love back out into the universe it actually multiplies itself it bears fruit tenfold a hundredfold unimaginably more fruit than we ever could think of this side of the clarity of heaven and he believes in the empty tomb life after death that's how you can stand in front of a bunch of armed soldiers who shooting AK-47 bullets at your feet undeterred, unafraid, because he believes sin's been buried. He believes death has been, in fact, put to death. The great fear of all humankind is death, except for the people of resurrection, because in the shadow of death, we see the light of triumph. So don't you see the ideas we believe matter? Oh, they matter so much, and I would ask you today: What do you believe—the core of who you are—because it'll make or break your life. Uh, John Mark Comer actually wrote a book on this recently called "Live No Lies," and in the book he makes the case that the uh, the primary battlefront for spiritual warfare—you may have heard that talked about in churches—is uh, is in the realm of our ideas, or in the realm of our minds, as human beings. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. One of the things that makes us unique as a species, humans, uh, is that we have this capacity to hold complex ideas in our brains. Right? Like we just, okay, they, they can be complex ideas in touch with reality. They can be out of touch with reality. All right? But nonetheless, we can hold complex ideas here. Animals don't do that. Gophers are not making life plans. Puppies are not making financial plans for Q3. Spiders do not believe conspiracy theories, nor do they join cults, nor do they use essential oils. But my wife and her friends do. That was not smart to say she's probably in the service right now. For for what it's worth, we're we're diffusing serenity in the smoke right now. That's what's happening right here so just just like in our kitchen. Um, okay. Now the the point is, the point is, is that animals animals they just, they act on evolutionary instinct but human beings don't we have this amazing creative capacity we might call it our imagination and that's a good thing like our imaginations allow us to create it allows us to bring to life technologies and apps that never before existed it allows us to bring to life words and poetry or novels that are stirring and provocative it allows us to bring to life philosophies or theologies that have amazing explanatory power we can bring to life dinners and desserts that light up our taste buds We can hold creative unrealities into our head and then summon them into life with our bodies. And that's pretty amazing. But the problem is that while our creative capacity is a gift, it can be manipulated. Oh, it can be manipulated so easily. Exhibit A, allow me to introduce to you Perhaps the chief manipulator of the last century. His name is Edward Bernays. You ever heard of him? So uh, Edward Bernays is the modern father of public relations. Actually, Sigmund Freud's nephew. Basically what he did was he took his uh, uncle's insights on the human psyche and he applied it to his craft in order to manipulate the American populace. He's very good at it. Google his achievements. Okay, so like first he got Calvin Coolidge reelected by helping Coolidge change his stern public image. Uh, He overthrew the Guatemalan government in order to sell bananas, kid you not. He's the one who actually convinced us that bacon and eggs should be breakfast foods. Did you know that? Like why are bacon and eggs breakfast foods? Why? Like, is it in the Bible? No. It's, not. it's because Bernays, it's because Beach Nut Packing Company wanted to sell bacon, and so they hired Edward Bernays. And at that point in time, people's breakfasts in the 20s were small. They had like a cup of coffee and maybe a pastry or a piece of bread or something. So Bernays went out, surveyed thousands of doctors, got them to say that it's healthier to have a heartier breakfast, and then he used that, 5,000 doctors say, in order to sell bacon and eggs. I ain't mad about it. I like Bacon. But you see how this works? This isn't even, be- is even the best one. Okay. Uh, Bernays was, uh, in fact, the one who, per- uh, who persuaded women in the 20s that smoking was a part of the fight for human rights. You ever heard of the, uh, the Torches of Freedom campaign? Anybody say that before? Do you know what the Torches of Freedom are? Cigarettes. Cigarettes. Basically, Bernays capitalized on first-wave feminism in order to sell cigarettes. At that time, it was socially acceptable for men to smoke, not socially acceptable for women to smoke. So he said, women, smoke cigarettes. You're fighting for your uh, equality. He actually hired women to march in the 1929 Easter parade smoking cigarettes in order to change the public stigma. Now, can you imagine that, by the way? A big brand exploiting social justice and activism in order to Bolster their brand and sell their product. That would never happen today. Hmm. So I'll say this again. The human imagination is a gift. But the imaginative capacity we have can be manipulated. This is the war being fought in the spiritual realm right now. Over you and over I. Dallas Willard, great theologian and philosopher, said it like this once. He said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. So uh, if you believe that money is the key to security and happiness, that idea will come to life. If you believe that society's unattainable standards for bodies are right, that idea will come to life. If you believe that the only way to be happy is if you find Mr. Right, then that idea will come to life. If you believe marital fidelity is negotiable, that idea will come to life. If you believe black people just need to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps or all white people are bigoted, that idea will come to life. If you believe leadership is about getting stuff done and not serving people, that idea will come to life. If you believe that you're always right, that idea will come to life. If you believe you need the approval of others in order to be valuable, that idea will come to life, usually on social media. If you believe that getting the right politician in office will somehow lead us to utopia or somehow keep us from Handmaid's Tale, that idea will come to life. If you believe there's no God and we're just decaying matter on decaying matter, that idea will come to life. Or if you believe that the key to authentic flourishing in this life is to follow your heart and to make your own truth, that will affect your moral grid and how Far, you're willing to follow and sacrifice Jesus, and it will come to life in your life. So, we must be careful to live no lies. This is why in a John 8 44, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. Because the devil is in the business of planting distorted ideas into our minds and then nurturing them to life. Now, I want to give you two examples of this. Uh, one is a cultural example of how an, a, an unreality, a bad idea is planted and brought to life. One's a personal one, okay? And you can make applications however you want accordingly. Uh, first, the, the cultural example. Uh, so uh, when, when I was a kid, if I wanted to uh, own one of my favorite songs, um, I had to do one of two things. One, uh, you could buy the CD, right? Uh, yeah, no, I was not a part of the cassette tape generation. I had some cassette tapes. They were my parents, which means they were mostly Christian music and George Strait. <laughs> I got nothing against George Strait for the record. Check yes or no, come on, right? But like, but I, I just wanted to expand my horizons a bit. So you could you had to buy the CD, right? Or the second way you could own it is to steal it. Now, uh, back then uh, you could just how you had to steal music. You have to wait for it to come on the radio or you'd have to have your friend play it on their boom box, and then you would click record on yours. And you could, you could snatch it. Just like, let me, let me just gauge the generational disparity in the room real quick. By a show of hands, how many of you were a part of the cassette tape generation? You know what I'm saying? Okay. We call that the older generation now. Uh, <laughs> by by show of hands real quick how many of you are a part of a burn burn your cd burn your own cd generation okay we call that the getting older generation because i'll tell you go tell your kids that used to burn cds and they'll be like you did what you were like yeah it's just now if you were a part of the burning cd generation like myself then you were also a part of the piracy generation did you know you were a pirate Let me prove this to you, okay? Can anybody tell me what this brand stands for? Napster, very good, born in 1999. How about this one? LimeWire, very good, born in 2000. And basically, these peer-to-peer networks allowed you to download whatever songs you wanted to for free. But it was stealing. I don't know what the statute of limitations is on this. But I'll, I'll confess, I stole music. On the, both of these were on my computer when I was in college. And some of my friends, they stole thousands upon thousands upon thousands of songs. Now, uh, believe it or not, when all this was going down, musicians didn't like it. They were like, hey, that's stealing. Sales plummeted, lawsuits were filed. Very influential musicians like uh, Dr. Dre, Metallica, they spoke out. In fact, Metallica's uh, drummer, uh, Lars Ulrich, uh, he said this He says, If we're going to sell our music on the internet in whatever way we so choose, we cannot do that if the guy next door is giving it away for free. He's got a point. I was actually talking to Aaron Crane, who's our worship leader at the Clifton campus uh, this week about it. And uh, I don't know if you know this about Aaron or not, but over the course of his life, he's produced lots of music, lots. And he said, 2022 uh, is not that much better, Tyler. So Aaron's music has been streamed on Spotify right around a million times. It's got that many different songs out there, which is uh, really impressive. You know how much uh, money he's made? off of those 1 million streams on Spotify? Some of you musicians know. Not even 4,000 bucks. Why? Well, that's because for every stream on Spotify, you make about two-fifths of a penny, which means it takes about 263 streams to make $1. And that not... That may not make Kanye poor. He's doing fine. But what about the local artists trying to pay for rent or get groceries off of their life's work? They would tell you, I believe Kanye probably would too, that's stealing. And it's hard to argue with. Now, This is a fascinating moral phenomenon. Can you just think about this with me for a second, like as an ethicist or a sociologist? Because stealing has always been regarded in almost every culture throughout time as a universally agreed upon wrong. But in this case, all of a sudden, the moral compass just moved and nobody cared. In fact, I remember conversations in college where people would be like, Dr. Dre's doing just fine without me buying a CD, which is true But it doesn't change the fact that it's stealing. Other people will be like, well, stop judging me. Okay, I can stop judging you, but you're still stealing. Now, I just want you to notice. I just want you to notice how the moral compass moved. Now, here's kind of the anatomy of this lie. You ready? The idea planted in our mind was this. Uh, Everyone else is doing it. And it benefits me. So it must be okay. And the result of internalizing that idea was cultural acceptance for a globally embraced wrong. And we stole from sweet Aaron Crane. If you know Aaron Crane, you feel so much shame right now. What a sweet man. All right, that's a cultural example. Let me give you an individual one. you See how this works? Let me give me an individual one. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting in a classroom with uh, a bunch of other lead pastors of larger churches. And uh, there was a thought leader there uh, named Nancy Beach teaching us. Uh, she was former executive leader at one of the largest churches, uh, fastest growing church, leading church in the entire world. Um, but she and several other women um, accused their point leader of harassment. And it was uh, found to be credible. And so he was ousted, the church um, has struggled to get back to health again since then. She was basically teaching us on on how to make sure that we were never the leader who failed morally. Now to do that, she drew this diagram on the board uh, that she called the cycle of obligation. I thought it was so profound. In fact, I think it applies to all of us, not just pastors. This is exactly how the evil one passes off sin in our lives and then manipulates it into our bodies. So here's how she described it. Okay, for every leader, for every leader, you have what we would call workplace obligation. These are your responsibilities at work, right? Typically, the higher up in the org chart you are, the more burdensome or heavier those responsibilities are, but it doesn't matter. Eventually, every leader's responsibilities, their obligations get so heavy to where you begin to feel a bit of resentment. No one really appreciates me. They think their job is hard. Imagine if they were in my shoes. I don't get paid enough to deal with this junk. So it crosses our minds. Now, it was interesting. Nancy pointed out that this sort of resentment that boils up in our heart, it's actually inevitable. Everybody experiences it. It's almost like a temptation, if you will. So the question is, is what are you going to do with that temptation? When it boils up. Now, sadly, she said, for many of us, we devolve from resentment into entitlement. That's the next phase. Basically, we begin to believe that my job is so hard and this responsibility is so heavy, nobody understands or appreciates me. So because of that, I deserve special treatment. We begin to believe that we're in like a special category all on our own. And we can bend the rules. Same rules that apply to everybody else, they don't apply to me. Then what happens is when we act on that entitlement, it usually ends in what we might call an unhealthy escape. And this could be a variety of different things, but it usually boils down to money, power, sex, or some sort of substance. And when that happens, a good leader usually feels guilt about it. And so... In an act of penance, what do they do? They double down on their obligation. They go back and they work harder. They bring better to the workplace because they want to prove that they're actually a good person, that they're actually valuable here. And then you just start the cycle all over again until it spins out of control. Very insightful, right? I, I could identify with that so easy. And here's the anatomy of the lie. Some of you may be believing this personally. The idea is... My life is especially hard, so I deserve to bend the rules. And the result ends up being moral failure and the uh, relational and professional fallout that comes with it. So can I say it again? The ideas we believe matter. It matters so much. And I wonder, what if... What if we actually allowed the cross and the empty tomb? These two ideas, love over death, life after death, and this one man, Jesus, into the control room of our lives. What if we allowed those to be the foundational ideas we lived out of? What sort of reality would that summon from our bodies? Well, that's why I picked John chapter 20, read that resurrection story to you, because after the resurrection story of John, the risen Jesus comes into contact with four different peoples, four. And each of them, as soon as they encounter this risen Jesus, they are immediately transformed. So, First, there's Mary of Magdala. You may know her story. She is grieving at the tomb when Jesus finds her. She just lost the man who would meant the most to her. She just lost the man who had healed her spiritually And also empowered her and gave her opportunity that nobody else would have given her. And so she's weeping when Jesus finds her. But then the risen Jesus shows up. And her cries turn into a cry. She says, Rabbi, I teach her. And in a moment she's transformed from grief into the first evangelist of hope. And Jesus sends her and she becomes the first one to preach the gospel to the disciples. It's incredible. So I wonder today, is there anyone in here who's grieving? Anyone in here who has faced death over the last year or two and it's just ravaged you? Maybe you're facing the sickness of someone that you love dear and it's not looking good and it's it's your wife. You can't imagine living without her. It's your child. A parent is only as happy as their saddest kid or maybe maybe you just lost something else this year and it wasn't life it was your job it was financial security it was mental health whatever it may be i want you to know that mary found healing in this reality john chapter 20 verse 18 mary found the disciples and told them i have seen the Lord, I have seen the Lord. And if that was enough for her, I'm telling you, that'll be enough for you today as well. Come see the Lord. The church is the embodied presence of Jesus today. So can I just encourage you, come back to church. Start to pray again. Open the scriptures. Take the bread and the juice with us. See Jesus again. And it might not heal your grief in a moment, but over time, I promise you, Jesus gives victory over Death, Love over death, life after death. These truths can change you. After Mary of Magdala, Jesus then encounters the disciples. Apparently they didn't believe the gospel that Mary preached to them because the scriptures tell us that the disciples are locked away, like literally they're behind closed doors, hiding in fear of the people who crucified Jesus. So Jesus shows up. And when he shows up, you know, the first thing he says to him is he speaks to them a word of peace. John 20, 21. He says, peace be with you. But the scriptures say he doesn't stop there with just a word of peace. No. Next, he breathes the spirit upon them and he says, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. Or, in other words, Jesus walks into the room and he doesn't coddle the disciples' fear. He doesn't enable the disciples' fear. Rather, he speaks peace upon them, breathes into them the spirit, then unlocks the door and says, Go now and face your fear. And I wonder today is there anyone in here who needs courage? What are you afraid of today? What are you afraid of? Honestly, you afraid of another variant? Let me remind you today that COVID-19 cannot put Jesus back in the grave. You afraid of the wrong politician getting power? Let me remind you today that God is sovereign. Jesus is king of kings, and one day every knee will bow before his. You afraid of raising your kids in a world that feels a little bit out of whack? Let me remind you in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus promises that if you would just seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness then you will be provided for. Look at the birds and the air. Look at the flowers on the ground. Doesn't God take care of them? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of the unknown? I get that. Nobody would have wrote this story five years ago. If COVID's done anything, it shook us up and made us all realize that we got far less control than we thought we had. Is that what what shakes you up? Is that what makes you afraid? Here's what I can tell you, okay? You will never know if the road's gonna turn right or left. You will never know how life's going to play out. You can't make any guarantees of what's going to happen two weeks from now. I can promise you that. But here's what you can know. No matter if the road goes this way or that, no matter if you find yourself on top of the mountain or down in the valley of the shadow of death, you can know who will be with you, walking alongside of you. And you can also know that he defeated death. Love over death, life after death. What would happen if you embrace these as the core of who you are? Next, after the disciples is Thomas the doubter. Apparently he didn't believe Mary's gospel or the other ten's gospel because he's like, okay, I've probably been Thomas. Y'all are hallucinating or something because I know dead people stay dead. 100% of my experiences. But then Jesus shows up and changes him as well. Are you a skeptic? Is that how you're wired? I want you to know as somebody who is wired as a skeptic uh, as well, that there are answers to be found in the Christian worldview. Really good ones. But can we at least agree upon this? We need more than just science to explain the world around us. Like the universe goes beyond what can be accounted for by just science alone. Science is amazing, by the way. It has amazing explanatory power to explain the material world around us. But I would suggest to you that if you want to explain everything, you need science and love. Science and love. Science explains the material. Love explains the sort of immaterial, emotional, spiritual desires and drives that are within us. The two together, though, have enormous explanatory power. So let me explain it like this. Uh, Let's say my mama, who is in town this weekend, by the way, for Easter, help with the kids. Uh, Let's say my mama baked me a cake for my birthday, which also happens to be this week. And she she took it and she put it here on this table this cute little table that we've started bringing up. You like the table? I like the table. Um, she put it on the cute table, the, wa- the, Bible t- the water table. Let's call it the Bible table. The Bible table, just put the cake on the Bible table. And, uh, and somebody were to walk up and say, hey, why is there a cake on this table? Why is there a cake on it? Well, if we allowed the scientists to go first and the biochemists would explain to us the proteins and the fats. The chemists would explain to us the elements involved. The physicists would explain to us the fundamental particles. The mathematicians would give us elegant equations to describe why the cake is there. And those would all be true. Those would all be true. But if we were then to move from the scientists and ask my mama why the cake was on the table, do you know what she would say? Because I love my baby boy. And that would be true as well. Both of them get at the truth just in get, just different ways. One gets at the composition of the cake. The other gets at the intention underneath it. Do you see? Do you see? So look, you can spend the rest of your life, you know, believing that science and numbers and math is all there is behind the universe. But I can promise you this. You won't spend the rest of your life longing and searching for math. You will spend the rest of your life longing and searching for love. It's almost as if we were made for it. It's more fundamental to the human experience than even death itself. After Thomas the doubter, Jesus then encounters Peter. This is the last encounter of the Gospel of John. If you know Peter's story, there wasn't one person who denied Jesus, who betrayed Jesus on Good Friday. one wasn't just Judas. Peter did as well, three times. And in John 21, the risen Jesus commissions Jesus uh, commissions Peter three times as also a forgiveness of him for his three denials. It's beautiful. Basically, he says, uh, Peter, I want you to love me. I want you to follow me. I want you to lead for me. And I want you to die for me. That should concern you from this day forward. It's a beautiful passage. Uh. So I wonder today, is there anyone in here who feels like a failure? Anyone in here who's done something unforgivable in your mind? Or maybe you've just been gone for a while. Like I said, you, just, you just haven't been, and here you are back at church, but you've just been gone. I have found that the majority of the people who find Jesus at Northeast Christian uh, aren't actually finding him for the first time. They're not like never-churched people. They're de-churched people. So their stories like, well, you know, I was an altar boy growing up, but, but then... I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night when I was a kid, but then, yeah, my mom and dad, they raised me to to know the Lord, but then college happened or the marriage fell apart or I faced that grief and suffering in my life or I just got busy, like work made me busy and I've checked out and you know, now I'm back. Look, if that's you, whatever has brought you here today, I want you to know that Jesus wants you back Whatever created the chasm between the two of you, Jesus wants to bridge that chasm today. However many days you've spent walking in the other direction, Jesus wants you to know you have an eternity before you to walk in this direction. Come back to him. The risen savior wants you, he forgives you. Like Peter, he has a future for you. Love over death, life after death, if if you will have it. This is the power, y'all. It's the power of inviting the cross and the empty tomb into the control room of your mind. The ideas we believe matter. I can promise you that. And these are two incredibly powerful ideas. When grief comes to tell you that life as you know it is over, the empty tomb tells you there is life after death. When fear comes to convince you you should fear evil, the cross reminds you that it has defeated it. So get back in the game. When regret has lasted for years upon years, the gospel reminds us that it's never too late for forgiveness. When anger tells you to choose vengeance, the gospel will compel you to love your enemy. When apathy tells you to give up and stop caring, the gospel fills you with hope when addiction tells you there's no way out the gospel tells you that love will find a way when loneliness whispers that nobody cares the gospel shouts will not you come to church I'll show you 2,000 people who care when regret tells you you're unworthy of life the gospel tells you that you're loved to death when work tells you more, better, faster now the gospel says hey take a deep breath you're going to live forever what's the rush? When failure tells you you're not enough, the gospel reminds you Jesus is enough. And when old age tells you that your best days are over, the gospel tells you the best is still yet to come. So I would just invite you today, I would invite you today, if you have never accepted these truths, or if you need to reaccept these truths at the core of who you are, baptism numbers on the screen. Please text us. A pastor will get back to you. Please come and see us in the fireside room after. We're gonna have a baptism service next week we've already got close to 30 people who will be getting baptized. Half adults, half students. It's gonna be a glorious day. That's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna baptize people next week. And together as a church, we're gonna proclaim the gospel we believe. We believe in the cross. Love. Over death, We believe in the empty tomb, life after death. And I promise you, I can guarantee it. If you build your life on those two truths and this one man, Jesus, you will live one that is courageous and beautiful whether God calls you to Angola or Prospect. So will you do me a favor? Will you stand with me? Everybody stand. And, uh, and we're gonna close by reading this uh, victory text from the Apostle Paul and sing a victory song together in this classic passage paul literally taunts death so i would ask you today just to receive this as a benediction over you this easter paul says death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting for sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power but thank god for what well Thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, he says, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord.